Good afternoon and welcome to the Emerging Tech series of the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Savage, and this is the podcast where we speak to technology executives, founders and leaders from the world of insurance and insure tech. I'm grateful to be joined today by Oleg, CTO of casco to go Oleg, welcome to the show. How are you doing? All good, thanks. Thank good, you good. for having me here. No, it's an absolute pleasure. And um, glad we're getting this in. It's it's rare, but uh, very nice when um, both both sides can actually meet ahead in person of the podcast, which you and I managed to do at the uh, conference in, in Barcelona. So, you yeah, know, I'm glad we're getting this one in. Yeah, it was a nice conference overall. Yeah, a lot yeah. Of interesting leads. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's always the question after these conferences, but um, yeah, you guys looked like you had a good time, and and I think you were doing a you were doing a speaker, weren't you? Yeah, I was doing a speaker, yeah. Yeah. something. But uh, the way that they organized it, I'm not mm. sure about the viability of the entire procedure. Let's call it. But yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. fun. At least I had. Uh, a way to talk to a crowd for a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and hopefully we'll, uh, I'm sure, we'll run into each other, the many more ones in the future. Before we um, before we get into it, always a great place to start on the podcast is an introduction um, from yourself. I'd love to hear about how you got, first of all, into tech um, and also how you ended up in the world of InsureTech, you know, CTO of, uh, of Casco to go Sure, sure. So the way I got in the world into the world of tech was uh, in the mid nineties, like ninety four, ninety five. Uh, my father brought in a computer and said, "Okay, you can play games on those." And he was studying software engineering then. We just moved to Israel from Soviet Union a few years before that. In any case. I played games for a while. Then he told me, okay, you, you know what? You can build those games if you want. Obviously, what kid doesn't want to build his games, right? <laughs> so he brought me the first book of, uh, I think it was QBasic. And uh, yeah, the age of 13, 14, I was starting to write code. Then writing code uh, became doing more classes in software engineering during my high school and then you know Israelis so the army writing code in the army for our air force some of the code that I written was flying overhead I hope it stopped at this point <laughs> I was writing for the uh, for the air uh, like helicopters and planes never mind the point is <laughs> yeah i was writing code since then and uh, then i moved into startups and then i did some time as a ceo of a startup like six years and now i'm here as cto of a company a multinational company mm. and um Ending up in uh, insurance or insure tech, was it purposeful, the, the theme that I seem to get on this podcast and by speaking to many, many people, as I do during the week, um, 
just seems like everyone falls into insurance and insure tech. What, what was your kind of story about how you ended up navigating into this world? Unfortunately, I cannot tell you a different story. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing here. I was still doing my previous thing. Uh, and uh, Gennady, our founder, called me up and said, okay, we need somebody to handle the technology. We need help with this. Uh, it took a while back and forth, but eventually I decided to join in. Yeah, mm. but this is how I got into this. My previous startup was in agriculture, so right, a small shift, <laughs> small shift, but still yeah. hugely complex. And then, um, yeah. yeah, as I say, kind of I always say it's the insurance space is rife for innovation, but yeah, agriculture must be very much um up there in terms of complexities when when it comes to innovation with with technology and just for the uh just for the listeners you know many many that listen to us will know who casco to go is you've built a, an, a risk assessment solution in short utilizing data science and machine learning tools for the car insurance industry um could you briefly describe in your own words you know who are casco to go and and, and what is the kind of overall mission for you guys? So the mission of Casco to go was always to better assess risk. Before I came on, it was better assess risk by monitoring the behavior of drivers. You're familiar with telematic. I'm sure mm. there is more than one guest in your podcast that talks about it. Mm. It's a, a hot topic. It has been for the last 15 years. Uh, we were in telematic up until 2020. Then we decided that the important part is to calculate the risk correctly, not the collecting data or monitoring people or and whatever else. So what we did is we moved away from that. Uh, and instead of collecting data through the smartphone or whatever other means like devices, and we started just collecting data wherever we can find it, collecting uh, demographic, geographic, criminal data, whatever data we can put our hands on and can improve the calculation of risk. And the least uh, contact we have with the end customer, this is where we are at, right? So today our solution is works in a way where we get the portfolio data from our customer, which is the insurance company. And we add on top of it many additional data sets and uh, using uh, advanced machine learning techniques, um, we analyze it and give a more accurate risk assessment. Well, I can go into the discussion of what risk is, and this is a very, um, very extend, extensive topic, let's call it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, if you could, I know we don't, we we have a period of time here on the podcast, but could you could you get into that? You know, what is what is what are the main categories of risk for you guys within um, one building a tool that utilizes the refining the whole big data and AI capabilities and, and merging that with um the insurance industry and particularly auto insurance what are the kind of what is risk in that world yeah so risk in this world 
basically comes down to two KPIs that uh, I think any insurer would uh, would understand, which is the claim frequency, basically uh, what is the risk of somebody picking up the phone and calling you about anything, right? This already costs you money as an insurer. Somebody needs to be on the other side of that call to answer, to handle the call, etc., etc. So the risk of claim of having a claim, which is claim frequency, and then the risk of actually losing money on that call, right? So somebody called you and said that what's whatever happened doesn't matter. There was an accident, the car was stolen, or whatever. Now that doesn't mean that you are going to lose money on that as an insurer, right? It just means that there was a claim. Yeah. So those are the two key risk factors that we look at. But of course, there are more. There are uh, the risk of um, severity of claim or how much money you are going to lose on the claim or just profit on a policy. All those can be taken as actual separate risks that can be analyzed. That's mm. the idea. Just as you're kind of running through that there, for me, when you talk about the claims process within auto insurance or car insurance or mobility insurance, the it, it, for me, it has to be one of the most high volume with regards to claims within insurance. So I would just see, so for, for me, when I think about everything that I'm insured on, life, uh, travel, et cetera, um, and I look at car, I've used the car insurance claim quite significant, way more than any other insurance I've got. So right. I don't know what that says about me as a driver, <laughs> <laughs> but, but typically I feel like it's maybe one of those spaces. It's it's quite a fascinating one as to how insurers do make money from the auto insurance because I, I would think the volume of claims is, is super high. Um, I don't know what you're, if you've got any insight on that. So it very much depends on the type of the product that they cover, right? One thing is when you get a casco, basically uh, overall coverage that you cover everything, any possible outcome is covered except of facts of God, right? And then the claim frequency is rather high, right? It mm -hmm. can get to like 50 and 60% of your portfolio where yeah. uh, any small thing gets called in as, as a claim. The car was scratched, the car, the car was damaged, the car was whatever else happen if you are talking about uh, mtpl coverage basically the the base level coverage then the claim frequency good years between five and seven percent of your portfolio will call you up and and tell you that something is wrong um, and on bad years between seven and twelve it depends very much on of course location in the world it depends in depends in on on a lot of factors. Mm. Yeah. And how how has the last twelve to eighteen months been for you guys? Lots of change in the in the space, you know, which we can we will get into um, when we talk about you know behavioral driving and the EV space, autonomous vehicles, etc. Lots of change, lots of new products coming into the market that aren't as straightforward to ensure i mean how is that how has that been for for casco to go generally 
Yeah, so the last 18 months, first on the Casco to go side, <laughs> and then we were connected to the industry. Yeah, yeah. The last 18 months was very interesting for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we started to get a very high volume of uh, of customers. It's uh, a lot of people understand what we're trying to do and where we're coming from. Uh, let's call it the the product market fit situation where your product actually fits what your market needs right mm. this is not a trivial thing but uh, from the point of view of the entire market uh, the most critical thing is not the actual autonomy levels that we were currently getting from all kinds of players like tesla and uh, the main issue is the evs the evs are becoming uh, a significant uh, factor in uh, in insurance because there is a lot of them at this point, right? And there is not a lot of data on them because uh, up until now you had ice cars, that's it, nothing else. And you have decades of data about ice cars and what can happen and what can go wrong and whatever else, right? With electric vehicles, you are now starting to get to the volume of the vehicles where they become significant, but the data is still not there, right? So what we suggested to our customers, what we discussed with our customers is uh, the way to analyze them at this point is uh, let's try to look at them from more technical, technological perspective, right? So it's a car with very low center of gravity, right? And uh, that means that it will not flip easily because the battery is at the bottom, right? This is on one hand. And on the other hand, uh, this is a computer, right? So it's on one hand easier, on the other a bit more difficult to hack it, right? So you cannot just put in a, a pick and pick the lock open and take the car. That will not work. But you have other technological means to do it. So it seems like those cars will have, let's call it less claims, right? Unfortunately, mm. they are so expensive right now that every claim will be expensive, right? If a nice car is stolen, it will cost you ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars on average to replace, right? And EV will be fifty thousand dollars to replace, right? Mm. Now, if the battery is damaged, then it's a, t- a total loss to the car. This is something that you don't see with ICE cars, right? But yeah. the chance of it happening is lower. So, how do you handle this? We suggest to handle it in such a way that. Um, you look at it as a long tail situation. It's just a mathematical perspective at this point, right? Uh, you will have less claims, but each claim will cost you more. So model it like a long tail situation. That's it. Interesting. And you talked about the EVs. Naturally, there should lead to less claims, but presumably your technology, the analytics, the modeling techniques, that should directly lead 
to a pattern of trends that also has fewer claims. But I'm just more wondering how. Uh, how it how how the so the EVs can I can see how that naturally could reduce to less claims, you know, driver safety. But how does kind of your technology leverage that and and lead to fewer claims? So, leading to fewer claims—that's a complicated question because <laughs> this needs to be looked at uh, in the in the lens of a specific customer, right? Not for the entire, uh, not for the entire market. Right. Our technology is completely transparent to to the insured. When you work with an insurance company you don't know that we are behind it okay mm. uh, but um, the insurer has a better way of segmenting his own insured into those with higher risk and those with lower risk right now if we see with time when data becomes more available that evs become more of a problem or less of a problem, we can adjust our models accordingly very quickly, right? So basically our technology allows a specific insurer to be better than average in the market on uh, the question of uh, his own claims, the claims that he sees from his portfolio. This will lead eventually to lower risk across the entire industry, right? If this technology is utilized everywhere, because some people will not be able to to get insured because they're just too risky, right? That's yeah. a whole different question, but uh, we don't see it happening, let's call it before cars become autonomous. <laughs> <laughs> and then all this question becomes moot a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So you touched on it. Um, lack of data with regards to this new shift towards EV, but that impact of connected mobility and vehicle data, the evolving telematics, which you know you're you're an expert within. What, in your opinion, are the major impacts for this that this shift presents? The on one, the way insurance is provides the drivers. And what role do insure techs have to play in this evolution, this shift? So, uh, yes, a lot of data gets collected today, right? There is a lot of companies that deal with telematics. More importantly, the OEMs, mm. the, um, the guys that actually produce the cars, are already installing data collection devices in each one of the cars they produce. So the data becomes more and more available. Honestly, I see this additional telematic data to be useful more in prevention situations than in actual risk assessment, at least for the time being, right? Using this data to tell you, okay, let's say you're driving through a certain area and this area is extra dangerous, right? I would like you to know about it, right? I can do it with this additional devices, those additional apps, etc. And this will, of course, keep you safe. But as far as creating a predictable risk analysis out of personal data like telematic, we are not there yet as humanity. 
we need more data. It's just not enough at this point. We are not used to operating with this type of data as an industry. I'm talking about the entire industry, right? Hmm. The costs associated with this uh, with this is is large. Now, the way that I see uh, insurtechs actually moving the entire industry forward, that can be done in a lot of ways, and regardless of the data collected. So, insurtechs like ours that deal with the uh, with risk specifically, right? They can help insurance companies to better segment and improve their performance, which will lower the risk for them and eventually lower prices for all of us, right? So this will improve the entire industry. Uh, other companies that deal with claims handling will reduce the number of people the insurer needs to, to handle the claims that he has, which will again reduce the costs, which will again reduce the prices for the entire population, right? There are a lot of ways that insurtechs can move the entire industry forward. But uh, the question is, how do we continue in 10 years' time, right? How yeah. do we prepare for the fact that car insurance will probably become product liability insurance, right? How do you handle this? Mm -hmm. This is an interesting question, and there... By the way, uh, I think, as I said, in 10 years, we'll have enough data to, to be able to, to do a lot of prevention on the road. You as a human, right, you cannot take a, listen to many inputs at once, right? Take into account a lot of parameters at once, right? Uh, you cannot monitor while you are driving, if you, even if you get all of this data on monitors or whatever you will not be able to aggregate it during your driving, right? Let's say the traction level you have with the road and the danger level that you have in this specific area and et cetera, et cetera, all of those parameters. But when AI or whatever other tool that we will use start driving for us, it can take all of this into account. So I think the job of insurtechs today is to, to prepare at least the ones in the car industry, right? To prepare for this situation, for this eventuality where they they are needed not to calculate the risk or collect the data in general, where they are needed specifically to give preventing data to autonomous cars or to semi-autonomous cars, right? That's mm. that's my view of it. <laughs> how I see Fascinating. It. Fascinating. And that autonomous vehicle from someone looking on the outside then is is one of excitement and also being quite terrified of uh vehicles just jumping in and there's there's no one at the wheel or however it looks right but uh i think you answered it to a small degree why is it the future for <clears throat> why is it the future for you but why is it better for us not to be driving cars what's wrong with human beings driving them but i think you kind of touched on it there and and i think it's something that when you look at the I mean, in the UK, for example, the motor insurance market is worth, I read in Forbes the other week, there's something like over 23 billion. That's, that's you know, what it's, it's, it's declined from 23 billion by a small proportion. 
but despite the size and the volume of the market, most insurers make a loss on motor insurance underwriting. So we see a lot of bundling up from home or from breakdown or, or legal expense or pet cover, whatever. They try and bundle a lot of things in to make the profit off the other end. So when you talked about that autonomous piece being more product liability, is that do you think the insurance space desperately needs it to go to autonomous? Like I'm just kind of curious to get your thought why you think it's the future for us, but also for the insurance industry. So the insurance industry, I don't see it as the initiator of this move. Like, right. We will need to adapt to it. It's not, it's not a question of do we want to go there or do we need to go there or will it help us? That's that's not how I see it at all. <laughs> I see it, okay, we're going there. Now what do we do about it, right? <laughs> that's the question. Uh, and do we need to, on a more personal level, do I think that computers will eventually do a better job? Yes, they will. That's, that's a fact. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think that we're currently at the level of technology uh, to to have fully autonomous cars anywhere in the world, right? I don't know mm. if you have been to, to India, but if you yeah. have driven in India for like 10 minutes, you understand that no, it will not fly there. <laughs> it just <laughs> doesn't work. There are no rules. It's just Mad Max all over. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so no it will not work anywhere uh, anywhere you put it and it will not handle everything and I think that the problem is that we have a solution for machine learning today right but I don't think that it's the, the solution and the reason I'm saying it is that we, we all know that currently uh, autonomous vehicles are running on uh, neural networks right so you train a huge model like ChatGPT, right? You train a huge model, you give access to it, and the model does what it does. And then when you want to teach it something new or make it more useful, you again need to train it on huge supercomputers and whatever. Now, this doesn't seem like a winning strategy in this specific case, because your car, while it drives like you, right? It needs to learn the ropes. When you are driving, you do not stop after driving like five minutes stop on the side and think about what you did and then you can keep driving and learn whatever that happened in those five days five minutes this is mm -hmm. not how it works right you drive and you learn it happens at the same time this is something that is not happening in machine learning today however <laughs> however and <laughs> uh, there are a new uh, there is new research that uh, comes out in the last year or two uh, and there are a few directions. One of them is uh, liquid neural networks. Okay. And I will not go into all the nitty gritty of how they work. But the bottom line is just comparison of numbers, right? To get an autonomous car to drive in its lane, right? To train this with standard neural network as we use it today, even a deep one. You need a hundred thousand parameters, let's say thousands of neurons to do it. Right? With liquid neural networks, they were able to do it with 19, like one nine. You reduce the complexity of the problem by several orders of magnitude. And 
the benefit that you get from this is this this specific type of neural network actually learns on the job while you use it it improves right you don't need to send all the data back to the data center etc et mm -hmm. so i think that was the component that was missing and only now we're getting to the point where we have the computational models to get uh, autonomous cars really going really learning right but yeah eventually they will be smarter than us more accurate and more importantly you know during our conversation i'm sure that you and i know that i have zoned out for a few seconds here and there right mm -hmm. although we're currently engaging in you know there is nobody around me there is nobody around you and still we zone out for a while right yeah this is something that is dangerous at 100 miles an hour right yeah this is something that can bring huge losses to you personally from health perspective and from financial perspective and that obviously to the insurer right now if you could just like the advice we exchanged before the start of this podcast if you could <laughs> you would remove it from your uh from your repertoire right you would stay focused all the time unfortunately yeah. we can't do that so we need to solve this problem the only way to solve this problem is either go and you know do yoga for 20 years and learn to stay in the moment or <laughs> get the machine to do it for you <laughs> i totally agree i do and it's a great observation that that zoning out for even milliseconds during this podcast because we subconsciously do it but um maybe i'm paranoid but I, i'm obviously i love technology i'm i'm, a, I'm an ai geek self-confessed however I am somewhat skeptical about skeptical about giving too much can't say that word about too much giving too much power to the machine. Mm -hmm. And when you yes, maybe and I've never been to India, but I've heard from the driving there yeah, and it's funny, it probably would never work. Um where I'm from, just outside of London, um Leamington Spa, I mean there is some horrendous drivers in this area. So but it could work here and it probably would be a lot better for the community if there was autonomous vehicles in this area. But, um, you know, but my thinking and my paranoia is the two major things that one of the major things that we're seeing in, in the space at the moment from an insurance perspective, but from a threat perspective is cyber attacks and attacks, malware attacks, they're, they're being they're being done on a on a scale that as the years go on you know it's it's an act of terrorism to a degree but they are going on bigger louder and it has all to do with now what seemingly breaks into hacking technology for me how do we protect ourselves from that you know how do we fully trust these machines at some point you know do you not think that that is a a massive risk or a bigger risk than a human being being in charge of the wheel. So again, again, stripping away years of what we know and how do we kind of protect ourselves against the, the potential of that? I actually like the correction that you just did. You started by saying like a huge risk. That's fine, maybe. The question mm -hmm. is, is it a bigger risk? That's the more important question, right? Yeah. 
they they both might be huge, but is it a bigger risk? So, okay, I will try to do it with an analogy. I don't know if it will work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, well, let's go for it. I'm thinking of it like this. Okay, we have well, let's call it an eye in our head, right? Not mm. an artificial intelligence, just an And this intelligence we think is unhackable, right? That's yeah. that's the bottom line, right? You can hack a computer, you cannot hack a human, which is untrue. I can right now, during our work together, where we are both very concentrated on what we're doing, I can send you a message. Mm. And when you hear this ping from your phone, you will immediately become distracted. If I can do it enough times, I can disconnect you from, from what you're doing right now, totally disconnected, right? Mm. If I really want to attack the intelligence behind the wheel, I can find a way. Now, the question is, can a computer be hacked? Obviously, we know it can, be, it can happen, right? Can it be protected against? Yes, we have tools to protect against that. We have firewalls. We have uh, other things, whatever, mm. right? Do we have tools to protect against pings on the phone? Do we have tools to protect against somebody getting drunk in his car, which is also a way of hacking your own brain, right? Yeah. The answer is no, you can. You have no control. But my point is that what you are really, I think, my opinion, that what is your problem really is, is that when a human hunting you, this is something you can wrap your head around, right? But once yeah. robots start hunting you and killing you, right? <laughs> it's a whole completely different game, right? That's dangerous. Yeah. That's a different species, right? Yeah. We are okay. And we know for a fact that there are people that kill other people, right? There are murderers everywhere. Right? Mm. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to look at it, but that's a fact, right? And instead of being scared of people, we're scared of spiders or sharks, <laughs> right? So there is, I think, more of a psychological barrier. Yeah. In my opinion, right? So what you are against is the fact that a car, which is a robot, which is not a human, might be hunting you <laughs> or killing you. That, that's, that's, why I said, that's why I said paranoia. <clears throat> exactly. I didn't. Uh, I didn't think we we're going to get into humans and robots killing each other in this podcast, but I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I could. I could talk about this part literally all day with you. So I'm conscious of our time. I, <clears throat> you, I wanted to kind of move on to a more kind of culture piece away from EVs and autonomous vehicles and the tech behind it and everything that we've just discussed. But I do like to kind of finish on you know, your experience, your, just your takeaways over your career as a, as a tech leader. But one thing I did want to touch on, you write a lot of blogs for anyone that's listening, definitely check them out. But one of my favorite things, you know, you've came up with a, a condition, a very serious condition, um, and you've described it as virtual featureitis. And your principles are all as far as I can see, are you know about 
experimentation, learning, and rapid iteration. Um, can you explain what that condition is within a startup culture and, and how you came up with it? Yeah, so I lived it. <laughs> <laughs> I just lived it for for a few years, and then you learn to notice the problem. So just a small background, what uh, we are actually talking about. Yeah. Your virtual futurities is a condition that startups get. More specifically, I see it more when the founders of the startups are techies, right? So a software engineer wakes up one morning, decides that a piece of software will change everything, right? Mm. And the first thing that he starts doing is basically writing the software. That's that's the standard process, at least in Israel, that I see over and over and over again. People, the first thing they start doing is building the product. Now, when you start building the product and the only thing you have to go off of is your own imagination, we need to understand that this imagination is, well, basically limited and limitless, right? Mm. You can keep imagining amazing things and create worlds in which every piece of software you ever write works perfectly and everybody needs it, right? And then when you go to one of those people and ask them, okay, you created this amazing software that does whatever. Who actually needs it? The first answer that you will get, and you will immediately know that this person has the problem that we're talking about, is <laughs> everybody. Everybody needs it, obviously. Everybody needs it, right? Yeah. And this doesn't go away uh, because uh, one, one of our, my... Uh, one of my managers many years back um, said to me that there is a difference between motion and progress, right? You can do things and it seems to you that you are always busy, but bottom line, you are not actually progressing anymore, right? And this is what virtual futurities is when companies that are usually, again, usually not always, but usually founded by tech people, mm. somebody that came from either software engineering or whatever else, they keep adding features without actually testing the market, without going into the market and asking, okay, I'm going to write this software that, I don't know, cleans windows or whatever, right? Mm. do you actually need it and then you can tell me okay i need my windows cleaned right if your software will do it somehow yeah why not but the question is how much is it's going to cost me how complicated it's going to be etc etc you will start asking me questions which will let me know where i don't understand my own product right yeah and when tech startup founders get to this situation where they need to go into the world and ask about their product, they are not usually comfortable with it. So it's hard to start just talking to people, right? Especially as a software engineer where you are looking at your screen for the last 20 years, right? And not talking to anyone, basically. And uh, yeah, it's... Uh, 
this is how the problem starts. And then you can see it on the entire organization. You can see that the meetings in the organization are about what additional features we need. Nobody asks why do they need the feature. Mm. It's just obviously everybody needs a combination lock on a car, right? Why not? If you lost your key, you will need the combination lock, right? And people keep developing those features and building on top of one feature to another, et cetera, et cetera. And through this entire time, they don't get to the market. They never touch the, the, the customer. They never even understand why the customer needs their solution. And even if at all, does, does the customer need it? Maybe the industry you want to sell it to is not the correct one, right? So I see this in a lot of companies. And uh, a lot of entrepreneurs come to me with their ideas to ask how uh, how to develop them and how to go on. And a lot of times I see this. And the, the craziest part is that sometimes those people are so in love with what they created that instead of searching for, for somebody to, to solve the problem for, right? They just keep developing the solution because obviously everybody needs it. And they're just burning through cash. They're burning through their own life. You know, it wastes a lot of time from your own life to build a startup. So yeah, that was a brief on virtual futurities. <laughs> <laughs> a bit Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're out of time, but... Uh... I've I've loved this and it's been it's been very insightful and it's been a lot of fun. I think a great way to end it on I think you call it the silent killer of, of startups being that. And um it's just some great insight to end on on product leadership, when to add new features, you know, just build one thing and build it great and make sure there's a there's a need for it, you know. But um Oleg, thank you for coming on again. Um yeah, and have a good rest of the day. Thanks, man.